When cybercriminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Rick Reeder runs Fixed Income at BlackRock. He holds all sorts of fascinating titles in addition to Chief Investment Officer for Bonds. Uh, he helps to oversee $2.5 trillion in various investments. And this is just a masterclass in how to manage assets, think about your career, understand the relationship between markets, between fixed income, the Fed, the dollar, sentiment, consumer spending, just everything is related and understanding what matters when is the key to your success. If you're at all interested in, well, let's just call it investing or fixed income or active and passive this is just a master class as to how to do it right. I can keep babbling about how fascinating I found this discussion. 
But instead, I will say, with no further ado, my conversation with Black Rock's Rick Reader. You have a fascinating background, and, and let's go all the way back to the beginning. You graduate Emory University with a degree in finance. You get an MBA from Wharton. Was fixed income always in the cards? Uh, I don't think it was ever in the cards, actually. Really? The, uh, yeah, so when I graduated Wharton, I, you know, I wasn't one of those people who had, you know, my family was in Wall, was on Wall Street, and I didn't really know what direction I was going in. And actually, I was going to go and do something different. In fact, I was going to be a uh, strategist, uh, financial analyst to work for a bank and write uh, research reports. And I was, somebody convinced me to go into sales and trading, and I, uh, I decided to do that. And I loved, you know, they talked to me about, you know, I love sports and, I, you know, I love markets. And uh, anyway, I got into fixed income. And I, prefer, and I really liked the macro element to it. I really liked, you know, how you think about big picture and, uh, you know, one thing led to another. There was a job opening, and uh, uh, I said I graduated, went to E.F. Hutton, and nobody remembers anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, which became Those were the greatest commercials of ever all time. On TV, and right? I think people, yes, people already still remember them. Yeah. And, na- and then, which was absorbed into Lehman, and I got lucky to go there and got a job in fixed income, and, and then the ball started rolling. But I probably, two years prior to that, or three years prior, I didn't even know what fixed income was. So you spend, what, 87 to 08 at yeah. Lehman Brothers? Yeah. That, that has to be. One of the most exciting two decades at a specific place and a specific time anywhere on Wall Street. Tell us a little bit about that history. So first of all, when I started, I mean, I started in this, it was July 87, market oh, okay. crashes. Well, nothing was going on that Yeah, year. so market crashes. And then, I, you know, we don't think that, you know, it doesn't look like E.F. Hutton's going to make it or potentially he's going to go out of business. They get absorbed, Lehman buys them. Was and this a distressed acquisition? It or? was. So a Lehman paid a billion dollars for E.F. Mm-hmm. Hutton. And um, and they took, uh, I was very lucky, there were 35 of us in the training program. And it looked like we all were going to get fired. And they took two of us. And I'm not sure how I made it through the strainer. But I, um, <clears throat> I found somebody who I really liked on the mortgage department and uh, the mortgage agency, mortgage business. And I took a liking to me and they went into the training program. And then you know, and then, by the way, it wasn't like the crises ended between 1990 and the recession and the SNL dynamics, and then and in '94 and '98, and you know, all had a different stream to 2002. By the way, it seemed like every four years, right? There was, um, and then you know, punctuating with uh, obviously 2008. But boy, I mean, I went through. I, I think I still have the scar tissue to this day of. You know, all of these. And by the way, I think it's an interesting cyclicality to markets Mm -hmm. that every four years you need to recalibrate. You know, people are comfortable, leverage builds, and then and then it then all of a sudden, sometimes violently, it recalibrates. But I'll tell you, you know, going through it again in twenty two, you know, you just know that the next couple of years are gonna be pretty good because you just reprice things again. But I, I tell you, going through those years I'd love to skip those in my career. Mark your calendars for 2026. (laughs) And also, maybe we should rename 100-Year Floods, because every time someone goes on, this is a 100-Year Flood (laughs) until four years later. Four years. By the the way, it's interesting that 02, you know, why didn't it happen in 06? And so you think about what happened. Well, monetary policy stayed too easy. And Uh while I thought Chairman Greenspan was incredible, you know, he kept policy too easy. Remember, the housing market was starting to bubble they should have started tightening in 06, and we should have had the recalibration in 06. And the fact that it didn't probably created more pressure two years hence. Oh, for, for sure. Um, there, we can spend a lot of time talking about 07, 08. We'll get to that later. So what departments did you work in at Lehman Brothers? You were there long enough. Eventually, when you leave there, you're running the firm's 
global principal strategies team. So clearly that was quite a successful career path. Tell us about the different departments you worked in. So, I mean, I started in while I was going to go into mortgages, and that was where I was taken out of or the uh, place from the F. Hutton training program. I went into a six-month training program in Lehman, and I found uh, the corporate bond business to be incredibly interesting. And uh, and I got to meet two people. And you know how you learn in life that it's – and I've learned over the years. It's all about the people. Sure. And, I, and gosh, I found two people who were extraordinarily uh, – I, I mean, I thought smart – capable. I love their business. And so I started in corporate bonds. And then um, I started trading international Yankee bonds. So foreign bonds denominated in dollars. Mm -hmm. Did that for a while. Then I did um, crossover. So between investment grade and high yield. And then I ran um, then I ran the corporate bond trading desk. And then uh, did that for a while. I run our, then I ran our credit business across emerging markets, money markets, um, loans, preferreds, and then uh, and then I went to the principal strategies area before before I left in May '08. And um, oh, really? You, yeah, you hit the bid before well, uh, yes. before everything blew up. Yeah, which I mean, you know it was seemed, certainly yeah, which seemed prescient, but it actually wasn't. Just dumb luck. Yeah, it was definitely dumb luck, and in fact, uh, it wasn't even luck because I left in '08 and I started my hedge fund. And if somebody said, what would be the worst month in history to start a credit hedge fund? <laughs> May of 08 may have been the one, or certainly closer. You know, part of why, you know, I laughed, I brought my team with me. You know, this was an exciting point in time. The markets were bubbling and there, sure. and there were going to be some opportunities. And then it would turn out to be calamitous. And um, so anyway, the part of, um, part of what we merged into BlackRock in May 09 was we did, you know, we had a tough go in 08, but then started to do well in 09. But... Uh, we had an opportunity to, to move to BlackRock. You mentioned dumb luck. You very easily could have ended up in the MBS mortgage department uh, at Lehman. You were you had a half a foot there. Yes. How did you escape a fate worse than death? <laughs> well, I mean, it was. A, I mean, you think about it, that was '87. It probably had you know it probably was a good 20 year runway. <laughs> right. After that, but I, uh... I jokingly say <laughs> you could set the record on the on the racetrack. But if you don't make the turn at the end, if you hit the wall, it doesn't count. One hundred percent. Oh, that is right. But I don't. I found, you know, I was a financial analyst, and I was literally per, you know, where we talked about, I was going to go and do that again. I uh -huh. loved looking at companies. Both my parents were entrepreneurs. I loved how businesses worked, and to think, in, in you know, for some reason, naturally in school, I had a really tough go early in my school career because I didn't really, I didn't understand philosophy or psychology, but business always made a lot of sense to me. And looking at companies, analyzing them, figuring out how they drive cash flow, how they manage their liquidity was, I mean, I found it phenomenally exciting. So anyway, so I did it. I did it for a, for a long time. And, uh, you know, I still to this day, you know, being a being in credit, I think people underestimate like I don't I don't really think top down analysis works like trying to analyze the economy from the top, I think is too hard to do. Uh huh. Being understanding how companies drive inventory, hiring, capex spend, and to this day, you know, when I have a view on the economy, or usually I have a view on the economy or inflation, it's usually driven because I read so many corporate earnings reports and understand, try and understand why they why they're cutting inventory, why are they laying off people. Anyway, so it's been having a credit corporate background has been hugely powerful because I tend to every analysis we do, big picture starts bottoms up. And uh, and that's what informs. I find that's the most effective way to inform your view. Is that how you ran R three? Was that was that yeah, the basis? Yeah. So the idea being, you know, that we could analyze 
um, dissect companies anywhere from you know senior securities secured down to down to distressed. And we had we had a great team, many, many of which are still with me today that I'm super honored by. I've, I've, a lot of us have worked together for 20, 30 years, uh, a couple of them over 30 years. But the idea being, you know, we were good at analyzing companies and could do it across cap stack, different sectors, and globally. And we have a great team in Asia and Europe. So, yeah, I mean, that was the idea. And uh, like I say, that's part of why it's translated to a number of people coming to BlackRock and, uh, and being with me today. So let's talk a little bit about BlackRock. You said BlackRock absorbed R3. Tell us a little bit about... How did that come about? Was that something you were planning on doing or no. the right opportunity just came along and you said, I think I can hang with you fellas? So um, so I had known Larry Fink and Rob Capito, our CEO and president, for a number of years. In fact, the only other place that I almost uh, almost left uh, Lehman to go work for was BlackRock. And because I had such great respect for the people running it, and there were actually more people than that, They'd, uh, but, but Larry and, uh, and Rob being the, the main drivers of the company. And then, uh, you know, after, the, you know, I would say the fall of 09, you know, going through that duress around, uh, around a hedge fund and being in, uh, you know, it was a tough spot around the markets coming under pressure. You know, we started talking and we were back and forth having a conversation about coming to BlackRock. And, we, and you know, I remember Rob and Larry saying, we've been talking about for years, why don't you do it now? And I had a big team with me and, I, and whatever reason, I haven't worked at places for a long time, very loyal. And I said, but I got to bring my whole team. And uh, anyway, I guess I was a massive honor. They they, you know, took forty two people. Right. And um, yeah, like I say, many of whom are, are still with us today. So, yeah, you know, the fact they were willing to do that, and quite frankly, even at the time before BlackRock was this big, I felt like it was much the epicenter of finance. And I thought I wouldn't have gone to and, you know I, our hedge fund started to do well again, and I wouldn't have done it anywhere else because I thought this was a place that. Like, how could you turn down the ability to be at a place that was, if you liked finance and you liked what we did, this was a chance to work somewhere that was, you know, the epicenter. This is before it got to be the size and scale it did. So you've been at BlackRock for well over a decade. Mm -hmm. um, you're running fixed income mm -hmm. for them, essentially. Mm -hmm. Tell us about what the process was from bringing over a team from your hedge fund to, okay, now we're just going to talk into BlackRock and see what we can do here. Yeah, so I mean, the idea coming over is we were gonna we were gonna work operate our hedge fund and work and and work within the credit business at BlackRock, and somebody ended up leaving the firm who was the who was the CIO, and uh, anyway opened up a opened up a spot for me and I, you know I was huge honored to be chosen to do it, so that was was that twelve thirteen years ago. And uh, which, so, was, oh, which nine, was nine, ten. So you're there so, for six months, so and must, Larry says, "Hey, no, I got a I new think gig was, for you." I think it was. It must have been. Ten, it must have been August of. Uh, I'm thinking through it. August of ten, and um, I don't know it was a little bit of trepidation. I mean, uh -huh. it was a, it, at the time it was still a big place, and it was a little bit of trepidation, but it had been incredibly exciting. And like I say, I have so many of the team had come with me, and I gotten to know some really great people across the organization. So um, anyway, I was honored to do it, and uh, you know I've always been investing in different parts of fixed income, and the heritage of BlackRock was in the mortgage business. Mm -hmm. But I was my background was in credit, but we had so many talented people in mortgages, and that obviously a huge part of the fixed income market. That I felt like that team, you know, could take my shallow knowledge to the hopefully to the next level, and um, so then I became uh, I became CIO then and. Uh, 
Yeah, I guess I've been doing it for over a decade now, which right. is pretty so, unbelievable. So let's go over all your titles. You're chief investment officer. You run global fixed income. You're head of the global allocation investment team. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also on one of the executive management teams. Am so I- I'm on the, uh, the global executive committee. All right. So sounds like you have a busy uh, a busy <laughs> day. Like, how do you spend your time? What takes up the most hours during the day? And is it... I know a lot of these things meet once a week or once once a month. It's not like they're eighty-hour-a-week jobs, but it sounds like a lot's on your plate. We haven't even <laughs> talked about the various funds you run. So, man, I get up at three forty-five in the morning. And I Is that true? Been, yeah, I think. It's I been, thought uh, I was an early yeah, riser. You no, beat I'm, me yeah. by an hour. <laughs> you know, I, I think you know people. I always say to young people that come into the business. You know, why are you coming into finance? You got to really love it. And I, you know, I love the business, and I love you know it's dynamic. So I get up at three forty-five. Uh, you know, work out, and but I, but I literally the first thing I do is I check every market around the world and see where things are, and you know I pretty much go you know whether it's dinners or what have you. I'm, I'm I go to uh, you know pretty late in the evening, but I'm I'm pretty turned on by the markets and you know obviously our business. So in in depends on the meeting you're in. Obviously, people drive what we do. I mean, it's not we're not running an industrial company. I mean, it's people drive what we do. So a lot of those meetings are talking to people. You know, strategy meetings. Who are we hiring? What businesses do we need to grow? You know, where do, where do you think the next opportunity is in markets? Much of how BlackRock evolved is, you know, trying to be prescient about what is the next evolution of what clients are looking for. So a lot of those meetings are about, you know, trying to anticipate where are things going. I mean, that's, I have to say the first thing, and maybe I wasn't very good at it early in my career, but you start to think about, particularly on the asset management side, uh-huh. like, you know, you got to, you know, take in what you're getting today, but you got to have one eye on where we're going. And I think in all those meetings, just trying to think through, get in front of where we're going, whether that's markets, positioning our business, people, strategies, etc. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So you've been with BlackRock 
since the financial crisis back in 09 did you ever stop and think oh yeah in a decade or so we'll be eight nine ten trillion dollars was that ever in the realm of possibilities no no i mean at the time i remember when i came over and then soon thereafter the firm bought bgi in the iShares business right but gosh the the, the thought that you know grow into the scale that we've grown grown into never would have even been a consideration you know i will say you know, Larry and and Rob and the whole operating committee and the executive committee of the firm are very thoughtful about where opportunities are, and they've, they've built the business piece by piece over the years. You know, and I think there's something that's really important about, you know, we run our franchise around, A, what is the client looking for, but B, the risk system. So the Aladdin risk system is when I remember when I which came Which is over, unique and specific to BlackRock and not an off-the-shelf so, piece of software. Totally. Which is run by many insurance companies, pension funds who use Aladdin. And it's a it's a commercial enterprise for the firm. But I remember when I came to BlackRock and I got to you. And I knew about Aladdin when I was, uh, when quite frankly, was on the sell side. And uh, because remember, Lehman had the Lehman Ag. And that was the benchmark. But, it, but, but what happened, Aladdin was able to take it and bring it alive in terms of how do you manage money. And, you know, it's really been extraordinary around if you if you can analyze your risk, you can think about optimizing your return, you could build, you know, how do you look at correlations, diversification. And I remember I was like a kid in a candy store when I first started and I said, wow, this is this is powerful. I mean if and I say this to clients all the time, we could make, you know, the wrong decision on markets. But it's never that we don't know what we own or what that decision, the implications of that decision, given our risk system. And that's been a unique benefit to the firm. And I think that's part of how we've grown so much is, gosh, if you can make good, you know, hopefully more good calls than not, but you know exactly how they're going to interplay within a portfolio, hugely powerful. So no one bats a thousand, but what you're saying is the process and managing the information flow is every bit as important as the decision process itself. A hundred percent. I mean, a hundred percent. And, you know, when clients invest with you or rating agencies or consultants evaluate your business, it's all about what is your process, is it repeatable, and are you not going to embarrass them or cost them or cost them money? And, you know, we built the franchise around thoughtful investing. You know, we're, you know, we don't swing for the fences on one uh, investment theme. It's always try and build diversification, try and do it thoughtfully, and try and be consistent return without creating real pressure on the downside. And and I you know I think that's particularly fixed income. You know it's not the equity market, and I run you know some big equity portfolios. You know different fixed income is convex to the downside. You either get par. And they either pay you back or they right. don't. It's and return of capital, not return, return on capital. And so along the way, are you clipping enough coupon to get there? Equities, you're trying to get convexity to the upside. But to have, have risk system and a process, a repeatable process, you know, particularly in my business, I call them fixed income. I, I say it in my funds, a lot of my funds, it's make a little bit of money a lot of times. And as opposed to let's swing for the fences, let's just do it. Use relative value, use all your tools, use your tools around the world, do it over and over and over again. And I think that that model's repeatable, and and uh, you know people aren't shocked to the downside, which I think particularly fixed income is is the key. So let's talk a little bit about that. I think most public investors know about BlackRock from an equity perspective, but the company's history is deeply rooted in fixed income. Didn't it start as a bond shop catering to pension funds and foundations? Isn't that the genesis? Of it BlackRock? is. I mean, it started as largely mortgages, fixed income bond shop, and. Uh, you know, created closed-end funds, and um, 
but it's very much. I mean, Larry and Rob and the and the management team's uh, origin was in fixed income. And Larry, then, I'm sorry, Larry and Rob, Larry Fink and Rob Capito, uh-huh, uh-huh. it's our CEO and and president. And they're, but then over the years, you know, through an acquisition and their merger with Merrill Lynch Investment Management, all of a sudden became a big equity house. Mm-hmm. And to this day, where equities are bigger than the than fixed income today. And uh, and some of that is, is equities appreciate over over time, and the and compounded return works in the uh, in the equity market. But now you know our equity business is um, is larger than our fixed income, while both are, are are pretty good scale. I mean, in fact, one of the businesses I run, our global allocation fund, that is more of an equity fund. Um, you know, again, with a, with a bit of different, you, the way you run that, different than you run a bond fund. So uh, academically, we know that the passive side of equities over long periods of time tends to be a lot of people's best bet. Mm-hmm. But that isn't true in fixed income. Uh, there is alpha. There is above benchmark returns to be generated by active selection of credit quality duration and specific bonds. Tell us a little bit about how you approach fixed income investing and given the massive scale of BlackRock, how do you take advantage of that? So not many people know that, that most firms actually outperform in fixed income. Yeah. And, uh, and Really? That's time. not widely known? I'm, I'm, no, I don't, I don't think so. And uh, but Because the, the passive equity side, there's just so much academic 100%. literature. And as soon as you dip your toe into the research on fixed income side, because if you think about a fixed income passive index, you own everything, and a lot of it is not necessarily great. So getting rid of the junk, focusing on duration and credit quality, uh, right away you're ahead of the game. Well, that's my pitch. So <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny Monday. to say that. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> So first of all, that is exactly right. I mean, maybe I'll start with one thing in equities. There are, I think the number is in the, uh, there are 4,800 equities, different, different securities globally. I think there's 45,000 in fixed income. So your point about the ability 10X. to wow. right and the ability to say, gosh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in fixed income that, for a variety of reasons, a central bank owns it, a pension fund owns it, insurance companies own it. It has no value, and but it's you know it's been in a, in a portfolio for a long time. It's stuck there. Right. So so one of the beauties of fixed income is a finding one of the forty x thousand securities using your tools. By the way, at times using your liquidity, being able to buy mes, you know, being you know buying subordinated debt, buying mm-hmm. uh, you know what are functionally capital notes. But there are so many tools at your disposal. And let alone how much duration you're taking, how much interest, how much um, how much credit raise you're taking, illiquidity, et cetera. There are so many tools to try and outperform. And listen, one of the one of the secrets of fixed income is you generally try and carry more than the index. You generally want your income in a fund to be above the index. Can you manage that through downturns? And so when you get a downturn like 22 or 08 or what have you, it is. You know, can you manage the downside? Because it's it's generally, if you can get more yield than the benchmark, you're going to outperform over time. And so, managing that risk and making sure. By the way, you know there are, there are crises at individual companies. There is exogenous shock that hits, but managing that downside so that one expression doesn't hurt you. You know, you can run a good a good business that outperforms. Um, you know, almost every year. So let's delve into that a little more deeply. It can't be just as simple as let me buy the highest yielding stuff because there's a lot of, uh, they used to call them junk bonds, now we call them high yield bonds. How do you decide what is a high quality, high yield, and how do you make the decision, I'm not comfortable with this credit risk 
relative to the return it's going to throw off. What's that process like? You know, it's funny because today is an interesting, you don't see this very often, but much of the double B high yield market is better calling the triple B investment grade market. And that is because companies have been operating as double Bs for a long time. A number of them are moving up to investment grade or are inspired to move up to investment grade, where a number of companies in triple B that are at the lowest end of investment grade and maybe on the deceleration. So that's anyway. an odd institutional quirk totally. that. that Higher quality, higher yielding stuff has a lower rating. Listen, at the end of the day, there are so many metrics, you know, debt to EBITDA, your interest coverage. There are so many metrics that we dig in. What industry you're in, what's your liquidity? You got to really dig in. I mean, if you're a double A rated company, I generally don't do a lot of, you know, uh, thorough analysis. But if it's single B, I'm doing, we're doing an awful lot of work. So, you know, when we look across fixed income and, you know, beauty of having big teams around the world, you know, I tend to say, okay, I want to be in X amount mortgages, I want to be X amount credit, and then let the teams dig in and then, you know, think about, I'll give you a good example today, the high yield market has, because people need the yield or are looking for the yield, the high yield market is compressed right. to the investor grade market. I don't want to take the beta risk in a lot of high yield today. If I get functionally 90%, 85% to 90% of return in investment grade, I can sleep a whole lot better at night. And then maybe I take some risk in emerging markets or what have you. So it's all about relative value. Are you getting paid for the risk today? So think about, you know, where's the stress in fixing commercial real estate mm -hmm. is tricky today. Do I want to go and get that yield today? Probably not. You know, whereas, you know, parts of uh, credit card, um, auto finance are more attractive. So it is constantly trying to think about where do you want to be in the capital stack? Where do you want to be in sector? Where do you want to be in the world? Like last year, did you want to hang out in Europe? Probably not. This year, you know, fuel prices are lower, the economy's stabilizing, China's growing, you know, we're shifting money internationally. So every year, it's part of why the business is so fun, is every year, every month, every week, you know, the menu changes and the opportunity set changes. We'll talk a little bit about the inverted yield curve later, but since you mentioned getting return on the risk you take, how do you think about duration when the three-month treasury is more or less the same or better than the 10-year? So, you know, think about last year. I mean, I, I know in every, uh, every media event or any, any uh, thing we did externally, I talked about how much, and it was always people said, how much cash are you running? And we were running a lot of cash. In my career, I've never Meaning run, not investing in stocks or bonds, yes, but literally just dollars cash. earning in point in, oh 0.05. Uh, well, but as, as, as- A year ago, anyway. Right, as, right. But then, you know, the front end of the yield curve started to move up. And it became pretty clear all the central banks in the developed markets were behind the curve. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to start raising. Your price return is going to be negative. Stay as short as possible. Hold as much cash as possible. And by the way, zero was a pretty good answer for your for your return in 22. So if we were getting zero or, or, or getting our income at the short end of the yield curve, that was nirvana because we weren't taking such interest rate risk. Today, it's a little bit different because now we're approaching the end. Of, uh, by the way, it's not definitive, but we're mm -hmm. probably approaching a point where the central, where the Fed's going to pause. Europe's still got a bit more to go. Um, so now we can take a little bit more risk, you know, push it a bit further out the yield curve, because now our aspiration is, gosh, these yields, so you think about, you know, today, the, the one to three year part of the ag, the short end of the yield curve mm -hmm. gets you four and a half percent. The average for the last 10 years was one and that was 1.4. We're getting, we can now lock in four and a half and maybe the economy's coming off, the central bank, not in 23, but will start to ease. And now there's a discussion about, gosh, maybe I can lock these yields in for longer. And so maybe I'll take a little bit of downside. 
and push my maturities a bit further on the yield curve. So when you been say doing, out from one to three, you don't mean 10, you mean so, three, four, five? Correct. I mean, that's that's been, to me, that's the sweet spot. And the biggest, I think the biggest opportunity today is sell re- interest rate volatility. You think about, in my career, I've never seen this before. We had a Fed that moved 475 basis point moves in a row. Interest rate volatility was massive. 81, 82, you had to go back to Volcker to see that, right? Yes, but I, but I was still in college, so I wasn't. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but now, I mean, this massive move, and now what's going to happen is we're going to pause. Interest rate volatility can come down. Things like mortgages, like we didn't own many mortgages last year is in our tactical uh, portfolios. You know, why would you own negative interest rate shock, right. negative conduct? So now... Fed coming into a pause, interest rate volatility comes down, things like agency mortgages fit a portfolio, that gets you a little bit longer on the yield curve. So let's think about that, that we spiked up to about 7%, it's pulled back to about 65 more yeah. or less, on yeah, the mortgage less. side. Yeah. Uh, are the expectations that, hey, that's where mortgage rates are going to be for a long time? So MBS are starting to get attractive? Yeah. I mean, now you can buy assets that are um, like mortgages, but first of all, they're extremely liquid. And so whenever we build a portfolio, we think about every security has a tail to it. So you think about what it, what is it doing for you? How much yield is it getting you? How much risk? How much beta? How much illiquidity? And so you try and take all those tails and say, okay, which ones am I willing to take and which ones do I want to extract? Mortgages today, last year I didn't want to take that, that interest rate volatility right, risk. Clearly. Now, Boy, if I think rate volatility can come down, I'll take some mortgage risks. They're super liquid. Um, they fit the portfolio nicely because you know having such liquidity through those assets. Now I could buy a little bit of emerging markets, which are less liquid and more volatile, but can also get me more yield. So it's very, very different portfolio positioning today than, than quite frankly, three months ago. Before we leave the subject of BlackRock, I feel like we have to talk about the funds you manage okay. on their behalf many of which have been awarded Morningstar gold medals, as well as you've received a number of Mm -hmm. uh, recognitions about your funds. Let's talk a little bit about strategic income, global opportunity, total return, and strategic global opportunity, total return. I'm messing up those names. Tell us about your funds. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been honored to run some some pretty great funds. I mean, our strategic income opportunities is a flexible, unconstrained fund. So unconstrained, you know, when you think about fixed income, when you say they're unconstrained, it sounds like you're hanging from the chandeliers taking risk. Unconstrained, <laughs> unconstrained is means I could take less risk because you know the point you made earlier about gosh, I don't have to be tethered to an index. Right, you're free to own what you want. I can hedge. I can hedge my portfolio freely. Like last year, we can use the dollar. I can use. I can get short in uh, in some areas. So. So unconstrained, what we're trying to do is create consistent return over time. and so Regardless that people, of, of the exterior market yeah, uh, we, conditions. Yeah, we, did, we didn't make money last year. We were down, but we beat the aggregate index by, I think, 750 basis points. You know, years like that, if you recognize the regime and you lose less. What was the ag down last year, like 17? 13%. Yeah, that's, yeah. A big, that's the worst year in 40 years. Yeah, right? and so, you know, being able to recognize that, use some hedges, run a lot of cash, um, and then you know stay in the short end of the yield curve, and then today it's a little different. So the ability to be flexible and tactical mm-hmm. is unbelievable in, in fixed income. And I think much of the future of fixed income is can you marry to you know you think about the growth of iShares and passive, can you marry an opportunistic tactical portfolio that by the way lets us invest around the world when mm-hmm. things like emerging markets become attractive. So anyway, SIO has grown quite a bit over the years, and uh, you know it's been honored to to, uh, to have a number of awards to it. But I think it's just creating consistent returns. So quite frankly, people can get yield 
and then focus on the other areas where they take risk, equities, et cetera, private equity, venture. You know, our global allocation fund is more of an unconstrained, but more with an equity tilt. And that's mm-hmm. been super fun to run that. That's a blended portfolio, stocks and yeah, bonds? Yeah, so, so traditionally it would be 60-40 equity mm-hmm. debt, but with an eye towards you can be international, you can be domestic. The last few years, we've run global allocation much more with the U.S. spend. You think about the incredible growth of U.S. technology. That was something to, to ride for a while. Now we're shifting it more international, places like China, Europe, et cetera, that are really growing, and that valuations are cheaper. So that the neat thing about that fund, A, we could toggle from equity to debt. We could use a little bit of illiquidity around some privates. You know, now we're doing something in Global Al that it's hard to do in other funds, building up our carrying income. You could use that, use fixed income mm-hmm. to get there, use quality assets, but then take some risk in, in equities to try and beat the index in, um, in, uh, for global allocation. And then, you know, the other funds don't take too long on them, but total return gives you more of, you know, that if you were building a 60-40 portfolio, this should get you the 40 mm-hmm. and get you the the fixed income, you know, try and outperform the ag every year, but closer to the ag. And then our strategic global fund allows us to use the inter- international markets more aggressively. Last BlackRock question before I jump to uh, talking about interest rates and the Fed and, and the economy. At Rick Reader on Twitter, you have your own Twitter feed. That mm. is really unusual mm. for a person with your role in a mm. firm as large and buttoned mm. down as BlackRock. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you do on Twitter <laughs> and how was it getting that through legal and compliance? So, well, first of all, anything I tweet goes through legal and compliance before it gets out there, to be first part. Second part, so I use an incredible amount, I do these monthly calls, I do these write-ups, I use immense amount of data and analysis. And, you know, when I do my monthly calls, I literally lock myself literally in a room for uh, for one weekend a month. And uh, it's brutal putting those together. I do a quarterly forever. and it's just a solid yeah. 50 hours of work to it's get brutal. that ready. And I, but, you know, I've learned in my career that you got to take a step back and think about, you know, instead of following dollar yen every second, you got to think about why is dollar yen doing what it's doing? try and assimilate it all into a cogent set of thoughts. So I need a weekend to do it. Uh, my wife hates it, but the uh, it's not the most socially ingratiating weekend of my of my life, but I have to do it. And, and I go through and I put it all together, but I use immense amounts of data and analysis. I stare at graphs, tables, and then all of a sudden you get these aha moments. Literally, mm-hmm. you know, I, mean, I could sit there for six hours, I'm like, now I get it. Now I get why high yield trades here in Europe and it doesn't in, in the US and what, what cross-currency basis is, et cetera takes a while to assimilate it all. The reason why Twitter, and maybe I'm not the perfect specimen for, for Twitter, is you know my tweets tend to be have five or six, a long thread to them with graphs, and it's not a perfect, you know, in a world that wants- No, they're very useful. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a rare insight to somebody in your role as yeah. to what you're thinking. Um, I strong recommend Rick Reader, uh, at Rick Reader on, on Twitter. Thanks. If you're interested in fixed income and want to get a sense of uh, a person's, even though it goes through compliance, it, it all <laughs> looks like real-time thoughts. It is real-time. It, it doesn't look like it's been massaged to death by legal. Right. You, you've said, In fact, some of my questions we'll come up with are pretty blunt, Right. And they're just your tweets asking you what you were thinking. So no, I, I find that fascinating that you're able to – was there any pushback when you first said, hey, I want to go on Twitter and do this? So my biggest reservation is, you know, I think the world 
you know, it's pretty hard to think about, you know, what are you doing with duration? Oh, here's 140 character, whatever the number of characters is. Now 280, right. Right, 280 now. So now, so how do you do that effectively? And I've never been able to do it effectively. I always want to, here's my hypothesis, here's my ultimate thesis around what we're doing with it. But you can do it if, as long as you can get a few thoughts out there and then maybe people look deeper into what you're thinking. It can be a really effective mechanism. To Here's my conclusion, and it's different because usually you build up the conclusion there. I tend to find here's my conclusion, and maybe I can give you a couple of snippets to uh, how to do it. But it's a super effective mechanism to get out there. And um, so anyway, I read a lot on, on Twitter. I find it's because, like you say, it's instantaneous opinion and the news. The new tape. I think so. So I mean, I spent a lot of time, so it's been effective to be out there with it. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So let's talk a little bit about where we are today. I mentioned previously Volcker taking rates up in 81, 82. From 1982 to 2022, we've pretty much enjoyed a spectacular 40-year bull market in bonds. Is that bull market over? So, I mean, it certainly didn't work last year. The uh, So I think, you know, I, I think we are, I was looking at it, that uh, how the rates market, the Fed funds rate, looks like a mountain range over time. You know, it spikes higher, and then it come, you come down the other side, economy slows, then you come down the other side. And then a couple of years goes by, you start to move up again, and then you come down the other side. I don't think we're coming down the other side today. Mm-hmm. Of uh, So I don't think usually when rates move up this much, economy slows and we're coming. I think this is going to be, we're going to stay on the top of the mountain range for a while. And I think the Fed is going to let this, this restrictive policy percolate through the system. And I think people underestimate U.S. economy is the most adaptive, reflexive, and it will adjust. And you're seeing it in the interest rate parts of the economy, like housing, like automobiles, et cetera. So listen, I think, I think, you know, I think we're going to see a rally in, in in interest rates probably in 2024 and 25 because I think 
rates will go back. The ten-year Treasury will go back to two and a half percent. Oh, really? Yeah, and I because you think about it, what is potential growth in the U.S. and and the world. Growth follows the demographic curve incredibly closely. And you think about the world we live in, that's different than the 80s. You know, when you had explosive baby boomer, you know, they were starting to enter the workforce, et cetera. Yeah, the think echo about boom following totally. that, right? Now, and by the way, COVID accelerated this. You've had a fertility issue. And you think about Japan, China going through a demographic mm-hmm. difficult period. U.S. is a slower period. Then. So what happens is growth follows a demographic curve. Does it come off it when you have a shock, a pandemic, a financial crisis? Huge stimulus goes in. I think we're going back to a low twos percent tenure because I think GDP will operate at you know one and a half to two. By the way, lower in Europe, lower in Japan than that. So I think rates are going back. So is the bull market in bonds as a secular move from the 80s, 90s? Over 100 percent. But I think if you said to me, part of why you're seeing this huge move of people, I want to lock these rates in, mm-hmm. four and a half is nirvana. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't have to take a lot of interest rates, if I can get five, I can get six. We talked about, you know, my strategic income fund. I'm trying to keep a steady six in that portfolio. Boy, if I can get six and we're going to two, two and a half, you know, that's what we're playing for. This year, just sort of ride a central bank that is going to pause. And by the way, it may still move rate up a bit more than we are today, but can you ride through it with, um, you know, it's not going to be like last year. So it's a good market for fixed income. And then I think it'll get to a better market. So let's talk about something you actually tweeted. Quote, how far the Fed goes, how willing the FOMC is to overshoot to ensure inflation comes markedly lower will determine how uneven, how unpredictable this deflation of inflation will be in the months ahead. That's a fabulous tweet. Tell us what you're thinking there. Translate that for the average listener. <laughs> I was just saying, I agree with that guy. So the... Uh, so, he seems to know what he's talking <laughs> no, about. I'm not, I'm not sure of that. But anyway, so the one thing that I think is real, the U.S. economy is very different than it was in the 80s, 90s. We are now two-thirds of the economy. Consumption is a service economy. We never had that. It used to be a goods-oriented economy. When you moved interest rates, the economy recalibrated quickly because it was a goods-oriented economy, interest-sensitive, cyclically-oriented. Mm-hmm. Think about health care. You know, think about the jobs market today. All the jobs are being created. Healthcare, education, not hugely cyclical, not interest rate sensitive. Um, and then obviously leisure hospitality where there is some cyclicality to it. But my view is the Fed has gotten to a level that is restrictive. And now the question is, when you have an economy like this, do you bludgeon the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, mm-hmm. real estate, the automobile market, uh, parts of how you finance big durable goods? Do you bludgeon that? to try and help the overall bring inflation down. My sense is the Fed's gone far enough, doesn't need to over-tighten, and if it does, it will create exogenous shock. You know, the leverage in the system builds. You know, you see it in places, particularly real estate today. You know, the Fed's got to be careful about no, not going too far. And, and, you know, the one thing that I'm really, really sensitive to, you know, there's something really powerful that's happened. All the jobs being created today are the lower-wage jobs in this country. All of the ones we talk about, healthcare, education, leisure, hospitality, hotel, et cetera. Now you're closing the income gap. It took 20 years to close mm-hmm. the income gap. You know, you're getting capital going to labor. That is hugely powerful. The layoffs are happening in finance technology, the higher income jobs. And they're just unwinding some overhiring over the past totally. two years. So think about what, you know, the reason why I think the Fed should pause is let this play out. You know, if net disposable income for lower income, lower wage earners stays higher in, can, in with, a, with a consumption basket is food, energy, rent. 
it's not a bad thing that that inflation is a bit higher as long as wages for lower income are higher. So I think the system is recalibrating, the economy is recalibrating, it will recalibrate, and I don't think the Fed should overdo it. You know, to take two to three million people out of work, to more or more than that, you know, and particularly those will be lower wage jobs, mm-hmm. to take that, it, I don't think it makes any I, sense. I could not possibly agree with you more. And I have to bring up what you just said about the United States being a services-based economy. A large part of the reason we had this inflation spike was we shifted to goods during the lockdown. Now that's over and we're going back. Shouldn't this unwind happen naturally? Why does the Fed seem to be at risk, at least according to the bond market, of over-tightening? They were late to recognize inflation. Are they late to recognize that inflation peaked six months ago? So I think the one, I mean, I think the one mistake that the Fed made is that, like you say, they were too late. And I think they could have been. But they're they're, always too late, by the way. Historically, isn't that true? Yeah, but I think the reason why they were too late is because you had, I mean, think about vaccine happened. And all of a sudden you change the economic paradigm so darn fast. And that, and, and, you know, one of the things that's hugely important for the Fed is credibility. They laid out a path that they were going to keep interest rates low and QE in place for an extended period of time, and then it was hard to change it. Anyway, it was, it was, it was the That's wrong, an argument was, for maybe they should stop uh, playing with their cards on the table. So, Or, or am I wildly say, off with that? It's funny you say that because, listen, I think we've gotten to the place where there's, there actually is too much communication. Like we A lot, right? You know, you it's have too, the SCP, the dots. Now you, now you have the press conferences. Now you have one of the real tools of monetary policy is to be able to react and be adaptive to the economy as, as it is. So, listen, I don't think they, I don't think they should over tighten. B, I think when they get to this place or where they are today, I don't think they have to communicate every single step of the way. Right. They've done a good job of transparency, but now I think you want to keep your tools of, you know, I can, I can surprise mystery. if I need yeah. to. Yeah. And by the, by the way, surprise is, you know, if you're trying to shock an economy, you drop interest rates really quickly. But if you don't have the art of surprise and to be able to shock the system, the system doesn't react to it fast enough. The Fed has lost the art of surprise. That's really kind of intriguing. You know, you mentioned how quickly the vaccines came on. My favorite stat from 2020, from the lows in March till the end of the year, the equity markets gained 68%. That should have been a heads up to the Fed that, hey, we need to forget taking rates to 5%. Can we get off zero? Can we start to normalize rates? And sometimes the bond market tells you various concerns going on. Sometimes you've got to listen to the equity market. But let me bring it back to the bond market. There seems to be a disagreement between the Federal Reserve and the bond market. The bond market is saying, hey, we see a recession coming. We think you're going to cut rates in 2023. Jay Powell is saying, no, I think where rates are going to go up and stay up for longer how do you reconcile these two differences? So it's a fascinating dynamic that's playing in the markets today. So I don't think most of the people, you know, economists, uh, people that follow the Fed, that listen to what the Fed's saying, I don't think anybody believes the Fed's going to cut rates in 2023. I oh, mean, when, really? When the Fed says we're not, I mean, and all the Fed uh, you know, presidents, governors come out and say we're not, then I think you have to take them at their word. Why is the market doing this? You know, I've learned in my career that the technicals are as important, if not more important, than the fundamentals. What's happening now, That kind of the discussion we had before about money flowing in, because people are locking mm-hmm. in these yields, 
much of that money is not necessarily looking at what is the one year, one year forward, the two year, two year forward. They're saying, I could lock in four and a half, I right. could lock in. So what's happening is people are sitting on immense amounts of cash. And a decade of zero. And a decade of zero. So suddenly 4% looks fantastic. Totally. So what is it doing? It actually prices your forward curve in uh-huh. a bit because people say, you know what, I'm willing to take that. By the way, you know, the risk is that all of a sudden you have some shock to the system, the economy does slow, and maybe they do move. But people are willing to say, gosh, I'll underwrite that easing that's probably not priced right because I need to lock these yields in. And by the way, I spent much of last year sitting on my hands mm-hmm. and uh, you know trying to protect my downside. Now these bonds are attractive. So I think it is a technical condition that's, that's driven the market to price in that ease today. So let's talk a little bit about some of the technical conditions that I recall you discussing mm-hmm. in the fourth quarter of 2022. And there were two statements you said that have stayed with me. Uh, Let's start with the more uh, amusing one. October 2022, this is some of the wildest fixed income trading I've seen in my entire career. Uh, And I remember, I think that was the September CPI came out in October, and then we got the jobs date as well. Tell us about what was going on in October. So it was pretty, I mean, it's pretty wild. I mean, so you think about, by the way, when you think about 2022 and, and part of you know, the Fed deserves some blame for taking too long, but you also had a war that mm-hmm. was who thought you'd shock fuel prices and who shock, and food prices. I mean, what is it? Russian Ukraine account for 12% of the calories in the world. Right. So, so all of a sudden, giant bread basket, and second biggest sudden, bread basket after the U.S. And all of a sudden, what we thought would look like inflation would start to moderate or at least stabilize, we took a whole nother leg higher. And then, like you say, in September, October, we started getting these point core cpi was printing at 0.6 for two straight months you know so so annualizing that's over seven percent and all of a sudden like oh my god this fed may have to go significantly further and by the way at the same time employment was was extraordinarily strong and it is today and i still think people don't recognize there's not enough people for the jobs today there's still a deficit in all those sectors we talked about earlier. So so the Fed should keep raising rates. That'll get bodies and jobs. Oh, wait. Yeah. They can't create more people to fill those jobs. They can't create more semiconductors. They can't build more Certainly. houses. At a certain point, the Fed should really just declare victory and go home. So I think, you know, I you know, it's interesting how like every every committee, like the Fed, et cetera, there's always this I can tweak it a little bit. And I think at the I think at this point it's time the system recalibrates. I mean, the number of times that, you know, the Fed has to come to the fore when you have a financial crisis, when you right. have a pandemic. And then I think you got to go, you know, get to the back page of the newspaper versus the front right. and let the system do what it's going to do. Because the more that you create the news, if you think about it, if you're a big CEO, CFO, and I'm thinking about CapEx spend, long-term hiring plans, do I need to have the Fed as one of the risk factors in I don't think so. And I don't think we need to keep the economy will do its job of keeping the system on 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 pace. And you think about what just happened the last couple of years, like you said, goods economy to service economy, the number of people, job shifts, extraordinary of how right. it played out. Anyway, I think there's a time that you need the central bank to be on the front page, but I think we're leaving that news story. You mentioned Greenspan earlier, mm. and I had the same sense mm. that uh, you know, he had a great career, and then the last couple of innings helped to really ding his reputation because he stayed on the front page for too long and didn't say, no, no, the system's fine. I'm going to step back and let things play out the way they should on their own. 
So, man, if you go back in the annals of time, I think Alan Greenspan may have been, at least in my generation, the best central banker I've ever seen. Certainly I'm on the there. other side of that trade. Right. Sold to you. I'm short Alan Greenspan, All right, so and will continue to be. I am long puts. I will write calls. Whatever you need to do, I'll take the so, opposite side of the maestro trade. All right. So I. So. But make your case. All right. So. I mean, I watched him for years, and and, I, and I've seen very few people, including getting the honor of presenting to him many times. I've seen, I mean, the way he analyzed the data, the way he reacted to the data, the way he commanded policy. I'll never forget when when Greenspan said we're going this way. You, he had immense credibility to uh, to execute it. Uh-huh. Listen, I, I think, but I think your point is the last year or two, it was. It didn't make a lot of sense for him. I think people knew subprime and the mortgage crisis. The mortgage wasn't crisis. The mortgage dynamic, the housing dynamic, was was creating a problem that would put a um, you know put a real uh, damper on what was I think an immaculate um, uh, central banker. So you mentioned credibility. Mm. Does the current Fed insistence on taking us up to five five and a quarter is that sort of a third? Hey, we're gonna. We're going to have stable rates. We're going to have full employment. And we also have to maintain our credibility. Is that a third mandate for the Fed? I mean, I, you know, part of why, like I say, the Fed stays in policy later is credibility is such a big deal. Once you lose credibility, and it's part of why I think they've done a really good job of communication. You think about how the few number of dissents when you get an FOMC decision. Very you think rare. about Yeah, and there's opinions from the different officials that speak, but they're generally on the same page. And that, that I think, is really effective. Listen, I think once you lose credibility, then you're all of a sudden your, your monetary policy, because moral suasion and how you think about where you want to guide the system is usually important. By the way, if you guide this, the, the, the system in too finite a way, and this is part of the idea, like go away for a bit, stop defining every single- You can't be that granular. You know, I think, quite frankly, I think these SEP, the dot plot, uh-huh. is crazy. Like, why do you need to tell the world where we're going to be two years hence? You don't know where you're going to be two years hence. <laughs> right. Why do you need the price, the treasury market, to the two-year forward or the three-year forward? You don't know where. And you know, That goes forecasts. back to your sense that you need the ability to surprise totally. when necessary. Totally. And, and if you pin yourself- and in the past, the Fed has pinned themselves to a date and say we're going to move that. That's crazy, or to a, or to you know one number like core PCE is the most important. But why would you pin yourself to core PCE because there's weird nuance that happens at core. You have to look at the abstract. Give yourself some flexibility. Allow the system to do what it's going to do, and create normal volatility to markets as opposed to defining you have to be here. You, you mentioned core PCE. I'm trying to remember, was it Bernanke or Greenspan that liked the GDP deflator as their inflation measure? I don't remember which. Um, and they're not always, it's kind of surprising, they're not always the same. No. Last year, for example, I always love to throw charts up to shock people. Oil was negative for 2022. Right. Everything ran up in anticipation of the wartime chatter. Right. And then by the time we got to the fourth quarter, it was red, which is kind of stunning. Um, yeah. uh, what do you think is the best measure of inflation? And have we seen peak inflation? Are we are we over the hump? I think so. I mean, I, so, you know, I'm always, you know, what do I look at? I look at, I mean, core PC is, is important. I look at wages a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at the commodity markets, you know, a ton copper lumber natural gas all way off their highs yes and and by the way by the way if you if you take i mean we looked at this stat the other day if used car prices and shelter 
is are coming down, which we know they're coming down. If mm-hmm. they come down, if they continue to come down, everything else could stay at four to five, and you still get in the mid to high twos. Right. So meaning it's pretty, it'd be pretty hard for us not to have seen the peak. But you know, one thing that I, you know, part of, you know, I always in my business we try and think, what are your constants so you could evaluate the variables. Inflation is a hard one to think about mm-hmm. the constants. And if you don't, you know, I, part of why I read inventory numbers at retailers, what's the, you know, you talked about semis earlier. I think you have to think about the whole construct of what's driving top line revenue for companies. You know, you're seeing Tesla just did, you're seeing companies all of a sudden are dropping Ford price. Ford matched Tesla's Total, price cut. Huge. Big 8 and 10% cuts. That's huge. substantial. Oh, you know, when you see retailers, the Targets, Walmarts, you see, you know, they're changing in terms of dropping price, and you're seeing customers that are actually now shifting using more couponing, trading down, buying in higher quantity, as opposed so they can get scale and purchase. That's real, and that means inflation is coming down. And you know, all these things factor into what do you build into what's happening in inflation? Because that one is hard to say. This is the number, and by the way, I think markets do that. Like the right. the employment cost index, like that's the number, and then it goes to this one. Listen, I think markets like to have superficial information to drive big picture thoughts. So let's stick with inflation for a little bit because you've touched on so many really interesting areas. One of my favorite aspects of where I think the CPI model is wrong is the cost of apartment rentals. And I get the sense the Fed understands this, BLS understands this. The Cleveland Fed just created this new measure of owner's equivalent rent that looks at uh, renewals. Uh, But you also have things like uh, Zillow apartment rental listings, and apartment list is another index that tracks this. It seems that everywhere we look, we see apartment rental prices coming down Mm -hmm. faster than the BLS CPI model is showing. How do you calibrate all models wrong, but most are useful, said George Box. How do you calibrate a model that has issues that we think we the Fed understands what the issues are and yet are still acting as if um, the model is dead right? So one of the things I always think about for investing, and I say to our teams all the time, we're not in the business of being right. We're in the business of generating return for clients. Right. So what happens? So we've we have incredible AI data assimilation where we look at billions of prices and try and go where is inflation going, but the markets focus on core CPI. Mm-hmm. So you got to try and put together what are the markets going to react to, and oftentimes it's much more important to me to understand what is the psychology of markets uh-huh. than it is understanding. You know, what is like, where are we really going? Because you get leads and lags, apartment being the big one. There are huge lags in terms of when apartment gets into and the reduction in prices. So, you know, we try and think through all of that. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, part of what I'm trying to think through is it's less important for me to be right six months hence. But if the markets are going to focus on this core CPI report for the next two to three months, and maybe the Fed is going to focus on core PC, that I put at the top end of my priority set because I've got to buy and sell within a market. And so I spend a lot more time trying to think through what's the market reaction function and what is the data the market's tuned into because that changes over time. So you're always providing insight and advice to clients. But if you had 10 minutes alone with Jerome Powell, what sort of advice would you give him? 
So I would say I'm a, a I'm a big fan, but I think the uh, I think so. Long I think time he, listener, first time caller. Is yeah. That a- <laughs> so, but like I say, you know, with all the res- you know due respect, I thought last year was crazy around keeping or the year but keeping rates easy for too long and doing QE. I mean, in January last year, we were 120 billion a month going into the system. Certainly, it's zero way too long. You yeah, could argue how far it should go, but no, zero was, wasn't the right I number. That was wrong. Listen, I think one of the things that he has brought to the Fed that I think has been extraordinary is collaboration. And, you know, a collaborative decision making that across and taking in tremendous amounts of information. The thing that I would, you know, that I always say, it, let's say, and, and I've said this before, if the Federal Reserve said the funds rate is going to be 2% for the next five years, would the system operate better or worse? And if, if you were a CEO or CFO and said, okay, I know I got to figure out what my inventory level is, what my supply chain dynamics, but I know that I'm going to be able to fund myself off of a relatively constant interest rate, certainly the risk-free rate, there is huge power in that. And I think people mm-hmm. underestimate this, get us back on the curve and get us back on, A, I tweak it less than they do until you need to, and then you move decisively. And I think one of the things we've learned, you know, that central bankers do have done a good job with is when you need to move, be decisive and, and, and get it and tell people this is where we're going and shock the system when you do it. But let them know now we're going, and I think that's powerful. But then otherwise, back off and let let the system do what the system's going to do. By the way, it's harder in Argentina because you get <laughs> you get you know, a little. You, you don't have. I mean, we have such technology, innovation, adaptive human. I mean, think about. It. I did a presentation. I showed what it was 30 years ago. They used to look for a job in the classified you circle and go get a job. Now you think about getting a job today with all of the immense online, you have fluidity of employment That's mm-hmm. it, that we're watching play out. Fed doesn't need to do that much other than the shocked periods. Talk, talk about the impact of a loss of credibility of a central bank. It's apples and oranges between the U.S. and Argentina, which, by the way, I'm always shocked when the parade of Fed haters come out and it's like, we're going to be Zimbabwe. The dollar is going to be worthless. Talk about getting a trade 180 degrees wrong. Let's talk about the dollar, since Mm -hmm. I I mentioned Argentina and Zimbabwe. (laughs) Uh, The dollar for the past decade has been the only game in town. That seemed to have topped out in 2022. How do you think about the strength of the U.S. dollar relative to fixed income equity, U.S. versus emerging markets? What is the role of the dollar in your process? So, for I mean, well, 2022 was the only hedge we had. I mean, literally. On the dollar, really? Yeah. So 2022, you think about normally interest rates work against beta, against your risk assets. You know, normally volatility markets, we use a lot of, you know, think about call options, put options, the equity market. When volatility spikes, not a good hedge. It's too expensive because everybody's trying to buy insurance. The dollar was a good one because you knew that as as the central bank was going to tighten, the dollar was going to appreciate and risk was going to have a hard time. Today, you know, I would argue we're on the other side of that mountain we talked about, and Clearly. the dollar doesn't need to appreciate. And actually, you know, you could start to do things because the volatility markets have come down. I think there's one important thing with the dollar. You know, we're going to go through a potential debt ceiling crisis issue. The dollar is a reserve currency in the world. I don't think people really understand. It's two-thirds of the trade flow in the world. It's roughly two-thirds, three-quarters of the liabilities in the world. It's the collateral, the U.S. Treasury is the collateral in the world that is underneath you know, most transactions in the world. The dollar is such a critical dynamic. We're going to go through and always find, like, when do you set up for these trades? When do you set up for positioning your portfolio? We're going to go through you know, sometime three to six months from now. 
what could be an incredibly volatile period, and then the dollar becomes, you know, your your lever, and how you think about that is going to mm-hmm. change and uh, and evolve. And like like I say, it's crazy that we'd ever because of the right. immense benefits that accrue to the U.S. Why would anyone ever put our exorbitant privilege at risk to score political points? All those crazy. people really are are deserving of our disdain and should be called out for their recklessness and irresponsibility. But let's hold the politics aside. <laughs> the last question I have in the state of the fixed income world is, you mentioned since since we talked about dollar, we have to talk about emerging market. Last year, you said you're starting to become more constructive on emerging markets and more balanced, obviously, on the mm-hmm. U.S. dollar. You know, it, it has looked like EM was going to be the next part of the world to do well for the better part of a decade and the tires spin and there's no traction is 2023 the year em finally starts rewarding investors so i mean one of the things i've learned over my career of running emerging market businesses for a long time is you have to take em and dissect the asset class i mean there's sometimes it's not a dollar, monolith no and so you know the difference between mexico and Argentina and South Africa to Turkey is immense. Right. And so part of what we try and think through is where are we comfortable today when we're, we are taking more risk in uh, and you know, building some income in emerging markets. But gosh, you know, there are places today that, that, listen, we're not doing a lot in Turkey. We're not doing a lot in South Africa. But, you know, Mexico, you think about who the beneficiary for a world that's becoming more regionalized and who is, you know, the U.S.'s partner. Mexico's interesting. Brazil has done a pretty you talk about central banks and and mm-hmm. has done a pretty good job. Brazil is a is a good place Indonesia. So there are places and the way we've grown and by the way there's some corporates that are domiciled in these countries that are oftentimes better credit than the sovereign. So we've worked on we've increased our emerging market exposure, but I would say we're doing it in a way that is uh less emerging market volatility um uh, sensitive to it. And, uh, another example of where active has an advantage yeah. over passive is choosing your country of of both equity and fixed income. Yeah, and the one thing I will say, you know, active is going to live with passive for forever, and the growth of, you know, we obviously, you know, are, are proud of the iShares development. People can fixed income. You can. I use a ton of them. So passive has a place, but then the ability to use it as active man in your mm-hmm. in your process is. And by the way, parts of EM are hugely effective at using, uh, and we've been doing a bunch of debt and equity to get into emerging markets where at times getting scale is hard on the individual securities. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. 
But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Before uh, I let you go, we have to talk a little bit about Lehman Brothers. You started there in 1987. Uh, What was Black Monday like at Lehman Brothers, who bet then were really known as a fixed income shop. Tell us what that experience was like. And did it leave any marks? So I tell you, you know, every time, well, I'll say a couple of interesting things I think about that. I mean, every time you go through one of these crises, you think about, usually crises don't happen the same way the second time. Right. You know, so usually, and by the way, usually regulation solves yesterday's issue. Right. Every general fight's the last one. Totally. And so that, you know, that was and how, but, you know, still to this day, Black Monday, you know, wears on you. By the way, in, including on Mondays, there's a specific reason that Mondays happen uh, because of liquidity, et cetera, that tends to be or news. Plus all the over stress the over the weekend. Totally. And you, news comes totally. out and it just builds. Totally. But one thing I've realized over been doing this almost 36 years now is you got to put, you know, think about those crises. Think about how do you manage the risk of it? What's the downside? What's the odds of it happening? And then, you know, you still have to invest and you still have to take risk. And one of the things I've found that I've tried to fight against for my whole career is, you know, the, the longer you get, you've done this, and you've, the more crises you see, you know, less you, you know, when you get punched in the stomach, like it doesn't feel good, like I've got to like to do less of that. And you got to think about it. we're still in the business of taking risk. How do you manage those things effectively that you've got your tail risk downside? So to this day, you know, there are things like I've been through, whether it's, uh, gosh, years of trading Korea. And, you know, every time there's something in North Korea, I think about, oh my God, we got to hedge that. And I've learned over my career, gosh, I spend more <laughs> basis points buying insurance. Right. And think about it, if I just run my portfolio the right way, stop buying so much insurance because you'll figure out how to get returned to zero. And uh, but you got to think about those things and what are what are the risks and what is a hedge that could that could work relative to it that doesn't cost you that much or or how can I run my portfolio taking those risks? So fast forward from eighty seven uh, twenty years now it's oh five real estate sort of peaks in price and oh six in volume the mbs that was a big part of of not what you were working with but generally lehman mm-hmm. brothers yeah. starts to roll over as it starts to be stress uh we see the derivatives begin to play out when did you start to smell things were going off the rails at lehman brothers well i didn't <laughs> right. really I mean, is I- that you're there and you just thought this would be another thing I mean, I, I mean, I left in May 08. If I, by the way, if I thought there was any issue there or any other place, then I wouldn't have started a hedge fund. I mean, think about the volatility huh. that that would have created. Well, if I you're would have, betting on the other side. Yeah, but I, no. I mean, I, the Nate. First of all, I was doing credit, and as a credit hedge fund, it's pretty hard to run big shorts in credit. Right. So it, it, you know, so I didn't, I didn't think there was an issue. What I think was. You know, was it was hard to believe at the time, and we get back to the discussion of Greenspan and or Treasury, that it was hard to believe that you knew from 06 to 07, subprime was was a problem. And you knew the housing froth was so extreme. Right. But then it just kept going. I mean, remember in 07, <laughs> you know, we thought, okay, you know, there's going to be regulations, there's going to be change, the central bank will move. And you never think, you never thought 
that you would that you know policymakers would ignore all of these signals along the way and then we'd go down what was this tumultuous point in time you know started with bear stearns and then all of a sudden financial institutions are levered entities uh-huh. once the dominoes start to fall and you know you have whether it's derivatives or you have intertwined finan- an intertwined financial system once the dominoes start to fall and you think about what would have happened to right. other firms as well so Listen, I mean, I you know this went on for longer. 06, 07 felt certainly 07 felt a little queasy about <laughs> like why is nothing happening? And you had this incredibly overzealous housing market, and you know, I don't think that'll ever happen again because I think policymakers will react to that a whole lot sooner one would, than they did. One would hope. So you spend two decades at Lehman Brothers. Did you spend much time with the gorilla. <laughs> I did, yes, and I, and. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of respect for them. And uh, listen, I think they're decisions that I think anybody in their career, anybody who's running a company or a business would like to have back. But uh, but listen, I mean, you know, the firm had a really, really good track record for a lot of 200 years. 200 years. That's, yeah. that's the pretty and, good And by run. the way, including going through the 94 crisis, 98 crisis, right. the 02 crisis, you know, all Long-term of Long-term capital things. management. They were, yeah. part, they, they were on the right side of that, yeah. uh, unlike so, Bear. Yeah, so I think, you know, the track record was pretty good. And, you know, what's sad, I mean, I find it sad and that – you know, there were a lot of amazing people at you yeah. know, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, a bunch of places. That, by the way, many of those people go in, into, you know, have fruitful careers in other, in other worlds. But, you know, it's sad that it, that it you know, right. ends up that my, way. My, my pet theory on, on where Dick Fold went mm. off the rails was rejecting the offer from uh, Warren Buffett late in 08, I think, when the time came to think about who do we bail out and who mm-hmm. do we set an example. Gee, Warren Buffett offered you... A few billion dollars? How mm-hmm. do you say no to Warren? That's the, you know, the finance good housekeeping seal of approval. Goldman took money from Warren at an even higher mm-hmm. uh, rate, and it basically removed them off the table for, hey, do we have to worry about Goldman? Had Fold taken Warren's money, I think this might have ended differently. Maybe. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, like I say, there, there are decisions that get made, and, and, you know, I'm sure not everyone was... You know, was the right one ultimately, but but yeah. So you're at Lehman for 20 years, and you decide I'm going to set up a credit hedge fund. I want to go out on my own. Even though we start to we we saw the Bear Stearns hedge funds um, run into trouble, there was clearly froth in the housing market and the early signs of a crack in the MBS Foundation. As you're getting ready to launch, are you thinking, hey, maybe this is a bad idea, or what's Lehman's been good yeah. to me for 20 years. Tell us about your thought process. I mean, I, you know, we thought, you know, first of all, I have a strong passion around, you know, by the way, we started this company called R3 Capital. And so R3, people think it's my initials. It's actually, it was for reading, writing, and arithmetic. And so part one of the things I was super excited about was to start a fund, and actually 20% of our proceeds were going to go into urban education in the country. But I thought this was, I had a great, great team, many of which are still with me today, and I thought, and I had asked the firm about it two years prior, about, gosh, I'd love to go and try and do this on my own. With you got this. permission in advance. Uh, well, no, I asked the firm a couple of years ago, <laughs> and I probably should have gone and done it. And But anyway, that to me, I mean, at the beginning of 08 struck me as, my God, there's going to be volatility, there's going to be opportunity. We got a really good team. Let's, you know, let's go strike out on our own and do this. And um, and so, you know, it was an exciting point in time to, to do it. Like I say, I didn't think the system would come to an end as, as it uh, certainly wouldn't have done it you, if I you, thought well, that, that were the case. You teed me up for a perfect segue into a curveball question. You mentioned three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. Mm. 
you serve as the National Leadership Council of Communities and Schools and the Educational Foundation uh, in Newark. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about the work you do with community schools in less affluent neighborhoods. So I'm less involved than so I was on the National Leadership. So my my biggest endeavors today, I chair the board of North Star Academy, mm-hmm. which is where 14 schools in Newark, New Jersey, charter schools that I think I'm biased, but I think it's the highest performing set of schools in the country. I'm super, super proud of what the team does there and how we've been able to build that. And I started uh, something called Graduation Generation in Atlanta, which puts together the city of Atlanta, communities, communities and schools, and uh, Emory University to try and create the whole package around around a student from social work, tutoring, mentoring, healthcare. So anyway, those, those are big drivers of, of uh, you know, my passion in my life is giving people, particularly in urban education, you know, giving them a kickstart and a chance to succeed. And we've watched it, you know, in our schools in in Newark. I mean, it's extraordinary, including... What, what's your affiliation with Newark? How did you so work I, with uh, them? So early on, uh, somebody asked me to get involved with the Harlem Children's Zone, which is an extraordinary place. I lived in New Jersey, and I said, oh, gosh, I'd love if something comes up in New Jersey. And then this opportunity came up in Newark, and I got to meet uh, somebody named Norman Atkins, who's, I think, is one of the best educators in the world. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I was motivated by what they were doing. It was just one school at the time. Cory Booker was on our board at the time. It's one school. And then, uh, and then we got ability to grow to the point now where 6,000 kids, big part of the population in Newark, with extraordinary performance from uh from our schools and our and our students i mean the number of students we send to ivy leagues and graduate to college is 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 incredible and, so, no, it's, and newark has a reputation of not having a great school system mm-hmm. what's the impact of of this council on neighboring schools how do you elevate the entire um educational system so i mean the big deal around and i've learned this in my career it's part of why part of why north star was so near and dear to my heart we call it, uh, and there's a number of books, our, our lead director, um, uh, Paul Bambrick, started, it's called Driven by Data. It was one of the most famous books in education for a long time. We analyze the data, where are students performing, where are they not performing, where are we, how are we doing in, 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 literacy, in literacy versus math versus science, and we study it and we're maniacal about the data. Where are we not fulfilling the needs? And then, and then we adjust relative to that, similar to what we do in investing. And that it's been really successful. And by the way, it's permeated not just the city of Newark, but in many countries around the world. They're using, you know, mm-hmm. sort of our methodology around data analysis and making sure we're keeping our kids up to a level or and trying to I mean, the number of, of our students that take AP exams and succeed is just extraordinary. Hmm. So I know I'm super proud of, you know, what the team does around it. Huh. Really interesting. I know I only have you for a limited amount of time, so let me jump to my Favorite questions that I ask all of our guests, starting with, tell us what you've been streaming these days. What's been keeping you entertained? So I, I do. I mean, I because I'm going at work a million miles a minute every minute of the day, I tend to my releases on sports. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I watch tons of sports. When I get home, I, like, I love to watch Man, that hockey. San Francisco game was just uh, unwatchable. Uh, that, yeah, that one I didn't spend a lot of time watching. But I watch a lot of sports. I'm particularly intrigued, as you would imagine. I like a lot of the shows. ESPN does a ton of shows on getting into people's mentality and how do they win. And if so, it was Michael Jordan. There was a man that was an amazing series, that was wasn't it? Maybe the best I've ever seen. Yeah. But I love understanding what drives people, how they how they get to the next level. Similarly, when I read books about how how do you get to business to the next level? But that that's what I watch a load of those and then. So did you get around to seeing Drive for Survive to Survive about F one? 
It's so it's so funny because I went to F1 last year and we talked about it. I still haven't watched it. I got to watch that. It's shockingly <laughs> interesting, and they just rolled out a new one uh, on watch. tennis. Really? And then there's a third one coming that they started on golf, just as the Dubai really? League began. Yeah, it's it, they do oh, a really good that. job of making people you probably haven't. Yeah. I mean, we we've all heard of a handful of names, but it's that. You know, the up-and-coming tier that's so interesting. Um, uh, Netflix does some really do interesting sports stuff. Yeah, it's fun. So so let's talk about mentors who helped to shape your career. So so first of all, the person who hired me at Lehman many years ago, a guy named Bart McDade, is, uh, was extraordinary in making – I mean, I still to this day think about what would Bart do in that. He just had this incredible ability trade, invest, people – have confidence in people. Let them make mistakes. Uh, not too big. And uh, but anyway, his he taught me a ton. I mean, he taught me more. He's one of my best friends today, and I and he was extraordinary. But I have also learned from the best investors in the world. I've had the great honor to get to know David Tepper's, the Stan Druckenmiller's, Paul Tudor Jones, and I've learned a bunch from each of them. And and you know, a few things about investing. You know, like separating the news from the noise. Some of those people are extraordinary. You know, we live in a world where. Uh, we talked about earlier, things like Twitter, et cetera. We live in a world where it's constant sound bites. Those people have an incredible ability to separate the news from the noise. Uh, you know, interesting, interesting, that matters. And those people have been really, really helpful to me in terms of, think, you know, getting to understand how they think about things and, you know, what, what drives their persistent success. Let's talk about books. Uh, what are you reading now? What are some of your favorites? So I read a lot of books on technology. Huh. And I'm today, I would say less, less a book that I'm reading today, but I can't read enough about re deep research papers on artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. That, including the chat GBT, and I was spending a bunch of time this weekend playing around with that to understand it. But that, I mean, technology to me, I mean, the, mo the best book I ever read was The Second Machine Age that talked about oh, sure. where technology was going to go. And now I'm all about what is the next evolution of technology. And like I say, I think this AI is going to change the world in, in many ways. But I also like to read, I like to read books on uh, things like Good to Great, et cetera, that are, um, you know, that how companies ran their businesses uh, um, and how momentum changes things like the tipping point. Uh, Max, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I think, is mm -hmm. extraordinary. So the whole myriad of them. And I, I actually started reading some books, uh, the one I just finished called Permission to Feel, which is a, uh, mm -hmm. a book from, from Yale. You know, our students in our schools undergo a lot of stress, particularly during COVID. And this is how emotion and letting emotion out allows you to be more effective and deal with some of the stresses. So there's a lot of cool things that I've been investigating over the last, mm -hmm. last few months. Really interesting. Our last two questions... What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in fixed income? I mean, the first thing, I mean, if you really, I mean, a lot of people I watch come in the industry do it because they hear it's a way to make a lot of money or a way to make money. And I, I just think that people, I watch it, people come in and then they leave because they're not driven by it. Make sure you're right. driven by it. And then I think most people that come into this business or any business always feel like they follow the person who did it well right before them. Mm -hmm. And you know what was the hot firm? What's the hot firm? What's the hot area? And you, know, you think about what markets have taught me, usually you don't want to buy the hot thing. You want right. to buy the thing that's, that's maybe trending down and that may come back. But it's, you know, I, I remember when I was interviewing, you'll appreciate this, that I, uh, I Drexel was the hard firm, was a hard <laughs> firm that was impossible to get into. And of course, I didn't get a job there. Thank God, and the uh, or maybe I don't know, but the um, but anyway, people are always on what's in front of me today, 
but think about where are we going longer term and then where's the area that maybe I can grow as opposed to the place that maybe has already figured it out or or the area that's already figured it out. And I think people, you know, particularly coming out of school, you know, are, are tend to all move in one direction. It's amazing, like the interview when I was at Wharton, how everybody wanted to interview with the exact same places. So and don't top tick the market, in no, other words. No. And be I, thoughtful about you know, where do you go? And it's so much about people. Mm-hmm. Like, do you find the right person, the right mentor, the right group that you fit in with culturally as opposed to, gosh, this seems to be the path that worked for somebody else? And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 36 years ago when you were first getting started? So, I mean, we talked about one of them was just, you know, taking a step back and letting the superficial work work its way through. You know, I, you know when I first came into the business... I used to want to read everything. And it's like, if the more I read, the smarter I'm going to be. And now I've really tried to boil it down to the things that I think are going to be the most relevant, the, re- the researchers that I think are the best, and do a lot of the work on my own. Like, I, you know, peop- the, the research, the information that gets out there, it's usually homogenized. And it's usually, you know, if somebody else already had the idea, it's probably been expressed in the markets. It's in the price. So I try and do it. You know, I find like if I can do the work organically and come up with my own ideas, you know, a lot of people go, you know, every night to roundtable dinners and listen to other people's opinion. And I tend to believe while I'm wrong a ton, I feel like if I can do my own work and my own analysis, then I probably come to a better conclusion, especially if it's already been played out in the market. So huh. there's, a, there's a bunch of things like that that, that I've learned over, um, over my career. And then the one last thing I will say is I learned in my career, similar to why I struggled early in my academic career, is you have to prepare for everything you do. I used to think, like, you just come in and do it. Like, I, you know, I did well in school early on, and then I started to not do well because you can't just, you know, you, didn't, you can't over-intellectualize it. you got to prepare. And I find today that now every single thing I do, I spend a lot of time preparing for it. And uh, similar to the way I finally got better at college was, you know, you got to do the work and, and put in the preparation. But I find that young people that come in, you know, every day and they think, you know, think, I just read this and I can do it. It's all about the preparation. And I've, I've learned a bunch about that over the years. We, we were talking yesterday about simple but hard. Totally. Like people think it's easy. It's like, no, no, it's simple, but it's a as lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Totally. And that's the hard part. Totally. Really fascinating. Rick, thank you for being this so generous awesome. with your time. This was This was tremendous. We have been speaking with Rick Reeder. He is the Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at BlackRock, as well as holding a number of other titles. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check any of the other 492 such discussions we've had over the past eight years. You can find those at YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. Be sure to sign up for my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps us put these conversations together each week. Justin Milner is my audio engineer. Sean Russo is my head of research. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Paris Wald is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. 
finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.